Kristen, did you know that the Turkish word for beaver is kunduz? No, I didn't. Apparently it is. And, uh, I mean, I hear the kunduz are on the move. Um, no, Aslan's on the move. Oh. Which book are you reading? Um, the one where the beavers take a much more prominent role. <laughs> Hydra Wood. Chronically, colon, Narnia, uh, the podcast where we talk about beavers and other things, like uh, the Chronically Narnia series, the Chronicles of Narnia series. <laughs> we have just taken over this entire thing. The Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, right now, we are on book two, the most important one, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Today, we are discussing chapter nine. We are more than halfway through the book. This chapter is called In the Witch's House. And you had caffeine. Uh, I mean, a little bit, but... <laughs> Uh, also have a weekend, which makes me energetic as well. But, hi. Hi. I'm here with my co-host, uh, <laughs> who are you today? I'm a stone dwarf with my back turned. Hmm. And... Also known as Kristen. Yeah, I was waiting for that part. And <laughs> I am a dancer's cap, or maybe a sorcerer's cap, uh, also known as Chris. It's a dunce cap. Is it is a dunce cap? Oh, you I, thought should... I, dunce... I thought I said dancer's cap. I think it says dunce cap. Okay. Because need... I was going to talk about the symbolism of... <laughs> okay, stop it. No, no, no. This. We're not going to stop it. Uh-huh. We're going to leave all of this in. Leave all of this in. All right. Yeah. Page 92. They looked like huge dunces. I read dancers. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep that in. So you're a, a dunce hat. Uh, or a sorcerer's cap. I'm going to go with sorcerer. That one's much cooler. Um... Anyway, Kristen's excited to record today. It's going to be a fun episode. So we're talking about chapter nine today. In the witch's house. the witch's house. So this is the chapter in which we uh, get Edmund to the witch's house. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you were wondering what happened to Edmund in all of this previous chapter action. As the narrator would say. Yeah. Um, And holy cow. Take a breath. (laughs) Sit down for a second. I'm sitting down. Go get some candy or something and just (laughs) be still. That's going to help me calm down. Yeah. Breathe. (laughs) So we've come to this chapter to follow Edmund. So we've got a perspective shift. Um, So far, we've had many chapters that followed Lucy. We've had one previous chapter that followed Edmund when he got into Narnia for the first time. And then other than that, we've kind of followed the group of kids as a whole. So this is going back to following Edmund. This is another chapter that's following Edmund and seeing what happened after he left everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the second time that we have seen Edmund leave everybody and have a chapter dedicated to just him. Um, So you've lost all steam. I have not. I was just waiting for you to, you know, not dominate the conversation. Or me to not dominate the... Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start over. No, 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 no. no. So, welcome to Chronically Narnia. Uh Uh-huh. Again. Um, So... Dunce's cap. Yeah. 
Apparently that's what I am today. Would you like to go ahead and take us into our first segment, Kristen? No, but you can. Okay, so our first segment is what we're going to do is start off the chapter read, and we're going to do our summaries, and we just go through the chapter, pick out five sentences that we think summarize the chapter. What? Hence the name of the segment. Uh, and I thought we named this segment, George. Read those. <laughs> and we're we read going those. into George's segment. Sure, we can do that. <laughs> I mean, you didn't get Narnia Fusion Buffet, so you can name this one. That's right. <laughs> I get one. Kristen, would you like to do your summary first? No, but I will. Okay. All right. That's, there's, is that invisible ink that you have there on that paper? Nope. Okay. This is just the wrong page. Okay. That makes sense. The first thing he realized when he got outside and found the snow falling all around him was that he had left his coat behind in the beaver's house. As for what the witch would do with the others, he didn't want her to be particularly nice to them, certainly not to put them on the same level as himself, but he managed to believe, or to pretend he believed, that she wouldn't do anything very bad to them. And there, on the other side of the river, quite close to him, in the middle of a little plain between two hills, he saw what must have been the witch's house. As he got into the middle of it, he saw that there were dozens of statues all about, standing here and there, rather as the pieces stand on a chessboard when it is halfway through the game. Edmund stood and waited, his fingers ached with cold, and his heart pounding in his chest, and presently the great wolf, Malgrim, the chief of the witch's secret police, came bounding back and said, Come in, come in, fortunate favorite of the queen, or else not so fortunate interesting so we have two sentences in common uh-huh uh which I, I assumed we were going to have at least one since there's a lot of like very long very narrative heavy there's sentences. a lot of long sentences yeah. in this chapter and there's a lot of sentences that start with the word and yep every like <laughs> like oh i started writing my rewrite for later in the episode and Every sentence I wrote down for the first three sentences were all and. They all started with and. And then one of my summary sentences started with and. And I just, I didn't like it, so I had to redo it. I got really frustrated with the, the rewrite for later because of all of the sentences that start with and. Sorry. Just imagine diagramming these sentences in this chapter. And. <laughs> um, so yeah, this was my first summary ever. Uh, in the two books that I had to go onto a second page with. Oh, yeah, because the sentences <laughs> are so long. Yeah. yeah. So here we go. I've got half the chapter. Um, <laughs> just as Mr. Beaver had been repeating the rhyme about Adam's flesh and Adam's bone, Edmund had been very quiet, turning the door handle. And just before Mr. Beaver had begun telling them that the white witch wasn't really human at all, but half a djinn and half a giantess. In case you forgot where we yeah. were at in the last chapter. Yes. Edmund had gone outside into the snow and cautiously closed the door behind him. And, of course, that set him off thinking about being a king and all the other things he would do, and this cheered him up a good deal. And there, on the other side of the river, quite close to him, in the middle of a plain between two hills, he saw what must be the White Witch's house. Edmund stood and waited, his fingers aching with cold and his heart pounding in his chest, and presently the gray wolf Mogram the chief of the witch's secret police came bounding back and said, Come in, come in, fortunate favorite of the queen, or else not so fortunate. A slow, cruel smile came over the witch's face. Okay, yeah. 
That's a good final sentence. I I was trying to figure out if I could get all the way to the queen, but I just couldn't quite get there. Yeah, I, I was interested that you didn't include anything from the queen in this one, and I think that she's the big kind of... Yeah. She's the big ending of this I know, chapter. but I think that my inclusion of Mogram's statement that you also included was Not enough. Not so fortunate. Yeah. All right, so there's our summaries. That's kind of what happens in the chapter. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Like, real quick, there's, there's a couple of amazing lines in this chapter that aren't necessarily good from a narrative or character perspective but are just really fun mm-hmm. and i want to read a couple of those uh one of them is the second line in the entire chapter which is he had eaten his share of the dinner but he hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about turkish delight and there's nothing that spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food yeah. I'm just like, that's like, you know, that's a common thing that people say. <laughs> like, you know, if you're thinking about having your pot roast for dinner, like, don't think about the bad magic food that's just going to spoil her appetite, even, you know. Well, I think that that's more <laughs> to emphasize world building and the magic and the enchantment. But yeah, no, I, that sentence stood out to me. It was yeah, one I actually me. wanted to include in my summary. Yeah. Um, because of that. Um, while we're talking about sentences that stood out to us, mm-hmm. um, I have some thematic things I wanted to talk about, but I feel like maybe we should discuss some of the chapter's narrative a little more first. Yeah. So narratively we have, you know, we go back to what Edmund has done because in the last chapter we end with everybody looking for Edmund because he's done disappeared. And this chapter opens in a very like meta way where the narrator is like, and now of course you want to know what Edmund was up to. Yes. And it was like, yes, I do. Thank you, narrator. Um, How did you know? <laughs> but uh, have I been manipulated into caring about this person? <laughs> Maybe, but he sneaks out, and he of course is going to the witch's house without his coat. Without his dummy. coat, yeah, a lot of a lot of stupid decisions these people make. Uh, and it tells you know it answers the question of how much he heard and how much he stuck around for and what he knows that he's going after the witch with. And it also does a little bit of justifying of him, where it's like. No, he didn't enjoy dinner because he was thinking about Turkish Delight. And, like, he was just thinking that everyone had been really awful to him, even though they hadn't. And, like, so his perception is colored by, you know, and he's thinking about Peter calling him a beast. And he's thinking about all of these things. And he's dwelling on them and would much rather be with the witch getting Turkish Delight than sitting in this room with these people that he feels have treated him so badly. Yep. Which is very much just like this kind of victim complex that he's put on himself after he was like a liar to all of them and yeah. very much hurt Lucy and lied to all of the rest of them and is yeah. now being like, oh no, you're so mean to me. Specifically Peter. Yeah. He's real, real unhappy with Peter and like he's the one who's going to get punished when he's the king of, you know, all the things. Uh-huh. Uh... And do you think that's that's strictly because of the events we've seen in the book so far, or do you think this points to, like, a greater conflict between them as, like, this brotherly rivalry? I think the book itself points to a greater conflict previously when, like, Edmund is, like, doesn't he say something to Peter and Susan about them both trying to be mom and dad? Yeah. I mean, like, I think that, that there's a pre-existing conflict that's been established in the book. Yeah. Between Peter and Edmund yeah. and Susan. Um, so Edmund has daddy issues. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like he had said more to Susan about her being momish, but I don't know. 
Like, we'd, I'd have to go back and look at it. Because that's something I wanted to touch on, possibly, was that he has these issues with Peter, and he has these, you know, he is drawn to... This maternal figure, witch, and he's which, afraid of Aslan. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and maybe he has some, some father issues to work out. He also stayed in the house with Mrs. Beaver, as opposed to going to help Mr. Beaver, but also didn't do anything, and then claims that everyone else was ignoring him when he wasn't participating in the dinner prepara- preparations and being a part of the family, and he's like, oh, no, you're all ignoring me. Uh-huh. I'm not helping, but, you know, you're not, you're too busy for me. Yeah. Making food for you. <laughs> Yeah, so he is kind of a a whiny brat uh, for most of this chapter, and he, you know, he goes on this journey for several pages of this book. He's this... also being upset about things that like grown adults get upset about nowadays when they're like, "I don't have any friends. Yeah. Nobody loves me. Nobody does anything for me. They're all just making food that I'm gonna eat, and I'm not gonna be happy with it because it's not magic bad Turkish delight food." Are you talking about somebody in particular? Or... <laughs> No, just myself. Okay. Do you you get upset that I don't make you magic food? I mean, you do make me magic food, which is why I can't enjoy anyone else's food. Obby. Dull. Um, But yeah, most of this chapter is is just him traveling on this journey and going a little rant to himself and fantasizing about what he's going to do when he's king and, you know, how he's going to pay everybody back. And And how he gets covered in snow and how he gets wet and he's... Hurts his rocks. Wants to make roads in Narnia and own cars. And outlaw Um, beavers. And outlaw beavers. (laughs) (laughs) Um... He also, when he approaches the witch's house, it's described very similarly mm-hmm. to the garden that was in the magician's nephew. And I was very curious if this was intentional, uh, if this is a thematic echo, or if this is meant to actually be the same place. Because we have this uh, valley between, between mountains, yeah. and in the book, it's got a lake and a hill. Mm-hmm. But this is in the snow, so it's all frozen. So we don't know if there's a lake or a hill. It just says that there's a plain in this valley between two mountains. Yeah. And then the walls of it are described as being tall and, and uh, unsurpassable, essentially. And he has to walk all the way around to the other side to get to the door, which is what they had to do at the garden. Okay, okay. Um. So I'm just curious whether this is an intentional thematic echo, where when he wrote The Magician's Nephew, he mirrored the witch's house yeah um to to show this kind of temptation yeah um also i think that it's possible that this is the same place yeah um because edmund had to climb up a valley with the river and follow the river all the way up yeah now in the other book there's waterfalls off of a cliff yeah so it's possible that just over time this has eroded into more of a valley with a river flowing instead of waterfalls. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is a question that I had yeah. um, wanted to discuss with you a little bit, just some of the symbolism of this mirroring, but also, you know, the po- potential for it to actually be the same place. Yeah, I would agree with the symbolism, and I think there's an echo there. Uh, geographically, I feel like it's probably not the same place unless this is another instance of like, you know, retconning and inconsistency within the story going back to the prequel because in the magician's nephew we had to take a fledge and we had to you know it was like a full day's flight for him to get over the mountains and into this valley then it was quite far away from the lamppost 
Yeah. And here, I don't think they're that far. I mean, they were able to walk from the lamppost to the beaver's house, and he was able to walk from the beaver's house. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, distance-wise, yeah, it would be a change. Yeah. Um, your map also has the wildlands of the north, but it doesn't have the western wilds, which is where the um, at the border of Narnia with the western wilds is the cliffs, which they had to go over into to be able to get to the garden in Magician's Nephew. Well, don't you being a little geographer? Well, you know, I almost <laughs> read a book. Um, <laughs> you almost read a book. Huh? On geography once. Oh, really? Yes. How far a, into it did you get? It was a textbook. Oh, I see. I read most of it. Cool. Um, <laughs> geography was among my favorite subjects in school. Yeah. You are a little travel person. Yeah, but I also just like geography. Um, so, yeah, realistically, probably not the same place unless, that he, unless Lewis completely messed up all of the geography and just retconned everything, which he also did when he was like, eh, you don't know who Aslan is. Or unless um, the witch moved it magically and she was like, I like this place so much, I'm just going to teleport it over here. I doubt it. My... But she definitely has this symbolic parallel uh, where the, we, well, we as a reader are experiencing a parallel of this young boy coming to this wall that he has to walk to the far side of to enter into this area of temptation, this th- place where he has hope of gaining something, but also the temptation to take something. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, very realistically, like, Edmund is eventually going to be a king. Like, uh-huh. he is eventually going to be a king here in Narnia, and this is the place where he is trying to take that instead of receive that. So, it, <clears throat> so could there, now that you said that, it makes me think, could this be, since we're doing a, a garden allegory, could, you know, the the throne, could the, the title, the kingship, be kind of synonymous with the apple or the fruit that Diggory had to get from the garden? That's what I just said. Well, you didn't mention the fruit, so... I said that this is the temptation, and he's here trying to take the kingship instead of receiving it. Yes, that's... And it's one of those... It is the apple, very clearly in the parallel that I'm saying. But yes, now that you're... clarifying that. Now that you're mansplaining my point. Uh Uh-huh. This is why we have a stronger female audience. (laughs) Because you just do things like that. Wow. I don't know if that works, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and I can just call you out for it because this is a healthy relationship. <laughs> it is. Love you so much. Um, anyway, so yeah, there's. I, I totally agree. There's a parallel there, and you know that's. It gets iffy because I, I always want to say you know it's it's good writing and there's a good thematic thing going on. Do you think the bird that's watching him is parallel to Malgram? The bird watching Diggory in the garden when he takes the apple is a parallel to Malgram? Or That's... do you think the witch is the parallel to Malgram? Uh, or is the witch just the witch in both cases? I think the witch is the witch in both cases. I don't know if there's... I, that's a stretch, I think. Uh, I always want to get into this, but at the same time, I'm held back by you know, the knowledge that the magician's nephew was written last, and it was the prequel that came out after everything else happened. And so it was very much written after Lewis probably read through these things again and was like, oh, hey, I need to explain this thing or I need to do this. And I feel like a lot of the stuff in The Magician's Nephew was just him being like, oh, here's an idea. Let me expand on that. 
Yeah. Rather than the magician's nephew think... being foreshadowing of. No, no, absolutely, because of the way that it's written. But I think yeah. that it is very possible to intentionally write foreshadowing into a prequel. Yeah. And say that this is very much a parallel experience. The witch failed to seduce Diggory mm-hmm. at the garden. Yeah. And here is a moment where she is able to relive that exact storyline and that exact moment. Yeah. And seduce Edmund. Her and those young human boys. Yeah, well, she's a creeper. Yeah. Um, so that was something that I really wanted to talk about was that, that parallel imagery of the garden and yeah. that witch's house. Uh-huh. Um, but let's talk about some of the statues that he finds because before he gets to see Maugram and meet the witch, yeah. he encounters the witch's house, her courtyard full of statues. Before we hit the statues, I, I would like to say that I, I personally appreciate in this chapter that once we get to the witch's house, every instance of the word house is capitalized. Yes. Which I think is interesting. Yes, you uh, think that that is interesting, which is part of why it stood out to me as a symbolic representation of the garden. Yeah. Now, I know why you make, <laughs> you're happy with it, because it's a reference that you now can make directly to House of Leaves. <laughs> if only it was printed in blue on the pages. You know, when we do our own versions of these books. <laughs> you'll print all of the word house in yep. blue. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, we also have your favorite sentence ever. No, we'll get there. It's no, a, go it's ahead. A, We're talking my, about it already. It's in my rewrite. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we get to your favorite sentence ever in which you threw your fists up in <laughs> victory when you read it. I was sitting next to you while you were reading, and you just threw your fists in victory. You said, yes, there's a sentence in here that I wanted to have here and then I got to it about five minutes later and was just like, and this is the sentence? And you went, yep. <laughs> so tell us the sentence. Edmund began to be afraid of the house. Capital H. Capital H. Now, this absolutely, I mean, if we're taking this from that kind of, uh, I mean, it doesn't really work specifically. I've referenced the Jewish uh uh, spiritual practice of Pardes before uh-huh. and the um I believe it's the drosh which is investigating like other examples of appearances of a word throughout of a text throughout a whole text in order to inform our reading of this particular passage uh-huh. but like within your informed of your greater text of reading uh-huh. this immediately goes to the house of leaves and the house that's there and so you've you've kind of read that into this part of the text uh i mean t- saying like he was afraid of the house and the house in the house of leaves is relationships and it's this story of love and it's edmund being afraid of this story of love and this built up example of the house yeah I don't know. I, I can point to other things other than House of Leaves because, you know, I've read other books. What? <laughs> it's crazy. Here and but... I thought The Magician's Nephew was the second <laughs> book you've ever read. Uh, I've always uh, liked that idea of of symbolism with houses, and that's always a thing that I think you can, you can go really far with. Which I feel is what I was can... doing with the garden symbolism, but yeah. okay, fine. You can... Don't worry about it. You can speak uh, into a lot of things with that, and I think the house symbolism is something that is always worth looking into because houses mean so many things. Yeah. And they're such a cultural, not touchstone, but like, they're very the center point of culture, yeah. and they're, you know. So I think the house here isn't necessarily allegory, 
but it is representative and it's something that I tried to get into when we get to my rewrite where I am trying to make the house itself a character in the book, mm-hmm. uh, which I think that it, it is introduced like a character. Yeah. Uh, I think though that it's more representative of like, this is the witch's house. This uh-huh. is who the witch is. She yeah. is just a field of statues. Uh-huh. She has nothing living in her. Yeah. She has just got recollections of how powerful she is. Uh-huh held over um and how she holds dominion over other things the gate wide open anyone is free to walk into the witch's house uh-huh. and yet no one who walks in is gonna come out again yeah. except Mogram and the witch and maybe the dwarf yeah i will say something else here about the gates uh that you just reminded me of that i think is interesting because you know in narnia we have a lot of this christian allegory you know, as Lance Jesus, right? What? <laughs> Are we going to do that in every episode? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, thank you. Um, so, as I mean Jesus, and we have a lot of this Christian symbolism and allegory that happens. However, I feel like there's an, uh, an interesting divergence here if we're going down that path where, you know, the witch is, you know, Satan. The witch is the force of evil in this world. And she exists. She's Lucifer. She's Lucifer. Maybe. And she exists in, you know, this is hell. Uh, is her, her house. Her... No, this is her dominion in the mortal world. This isn't hell. She's not uh-huh. reigning and ruling over hell. Hell is prepared for her, oh, if you're doing a, a direct analogy. I don't know. Depending on which tradition you go through. Oh, what else? Uh, and this is, this is the... So dom- this is hell. This is the domain of the evil one. He's the... crossed the river Styx. Yes. We're mixing our mythologies here. But this is the domain, and yet, from a Christian perspective, we think of hell or we think of the path of evil as being very, very easy to get into and very easy to slip into, and it is difficult to travel the righteous path of the Lord, and yet this is very much a walled-off place that has a single entrance. And And Edmund is is traveling through the snow uphill on a path that would only happen to be able to be traversable if the moon was full this night. And it's very hard to get into. And I think that's a very key difference here. Yeah. Where this is not a place that's easy to stumble into evil. Evil is out of the way and it has to be something that you're trying to do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So that it says something about his determination to be selfish and to... Yeah. I also like what I said there made me think about how many times he is crossing rivers in this journey uh-huh. and what that symbolism often does take where he's following the river that the beavers live on mm-hmm. um, up to the little river that feeds it that comes down from the witch's house. Yeah. And so we have the beavers living on this river as a place of life, mm. knowledge, protection yeah and then we follow that river up to what is feeding it is this little river coming down from the witch's house Uh uh-huh and he has to follow that up crossing the river that the beavers live on but also crossing that small river again as if that is the river sticks feeding into this idea of knowledge of narnia of the main oh i'm sorry i'm getting carried away (laughs) with symbolism but But i'm really enjoying it but then what does it say that they're beavers and they're damming the river I mean, maybe it is that they're... (laughs) They're kundus. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. I could could write a paper on it, but I really feel like this podcast is less about paper writing and more about discussing these books. It is an audio medium. What? (laughs) 
So We're reading books so then on paper. Statues. Let's get to the statues. Okay, let's get to the statues. Sure. So there's a moment in this in which Edmund walks into walks in. Edmund walks through <laughs> the gates. He walks into the gates. Uh-huh. Um, Are we in the minds of Moria now? Yeah. <sighs> um, Edmund goes into the gates or through the gates into the archway, into the courtyard, and stops dead in his tracks stops in his tracks because he has come face to face with a lion and that's the first thing he sees going through the gates that is the first thing he sees going through the gates and we have already received this knowledge that aslan is a lion mm-hmm. and aslan as a just a word already feels fills him with so much fear and he has turned a corner and he is staring at a lion yes and he is ready for this lion to just pounce on him and attack him and yeah. he's very much afraid of what this represents what aslan represents as a concept what this lion represents standing here in the gateway of the queen's um mm-hmm. home yeah and he is just frozen he has become a statue himself in fear Ooh. afraid of this lion who is representative to him of death and uh aslan's king kingly nature oh and the the placement of the lion within the courtyard courtyard is obviously very intentional like the witch placed the statue here as being the first thing that someone sees as they walk through the gates it's possible that it's intentional or that it's just where the lion was when she stoned him Mm -hmm. um stonified (laughs) when she turned him to stone calcified um when he got petrified. petrified, yes, and then petrified as a word for fear. So um, Edmund is petrified. He is frozen, trying not to. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> he's petrified. And frozen. He's petrified. He's frozen. He's he's trying not to alert this lion of his presence. He doesn't want Aslan to see him. Uh huh. He doesn't want the Turkish word for lion. He doesn't want the lion to see him. Yeah. And then he realizes that this lion is staring not at him, but at a dwarf that has its back turned. He's like, great. So when it attacks him, I can get out. I can run away. And he is very much ready to just run away and abandon his his mission to go find the queen mm-hmm. when he comes face to face with this lion. Uh-huh. He is ready to just run away. Yeah. And I think that that is very much a reaction against his fear of Aslan, but also just kind of this reflection of what what he's doing is wrong. Uh And he's running from that. Yeah. Then he realizes Mm -hmm. that this is a stone lion, that it's a statue, that it hasn't moved, and also that it's covered in snow. Yeah. This is the sentence. No living animal would have let itself get covered with snow. In my book, that's on page 154. Mm-hmm. Mine's an omnibus of all the books. Yeah. And then we have that sentence. And that sentence just stood out to me so much. Because, one, we have this dumb kid who has been, <laughs> as previously mentioned, I'm going to keep following this line, mm-hmm. has been called a beast, mm-hmm. is upset with Peter for calling him a beast specifically mentioned in this chapter Uh in my book on page 151 where he's upset at peter for having called him a beast Uh and so we have this kind of moment where we see the beast edmund 
has left the house of the beavers without his coat, trudging through the snow. He has gotten wet with the snow. He has climbed up the river and had to stoop under trees and gotten his back covered in snow. He is soaked. He is covered in snow. Covered with snow. As the sentence says, no living animal would have let itself get covered with snow. So I feel like this moment in Edmund's head is just showing how completely messed up he is. Where it's like, this is an example of how much he is not seeing himself for what he is. Mm -hmm. He is this beast who has gone out and let himself get covered with snow. And he's sitting there looking at a statue of a lion that's been covered in snow and goes, no living animal would would have let itself get covered with snow. And that's how he knows that it's not a real lion. That it's not really powerful because it's doing exactly what he did. And no living animal would actually do that. So it's a moment where we're either seeing the death of Edmund's character uh-huh. or, you know, and representing that he is no longer a living animal. Uh-huh. Um, or it's a moment where Edmund is denying his own, like, his own actions uh-huh. and, and just denying the humanity and the reality of what it means to be in the snow. Uh-huh. Like... The beavers are in a house that's covered with snow. Like they have let their home be covered with snow. Like uh-huh. this is this is how creatures live. Like if there is snow, you are going to be covered with it. If you go outside and walk and move, or if you're in a house and there's a roof, it's going to be covered in snow. And so I think that it's a, an interesting symbolic sentence. And it really stood out to me a lot. When you said that there's nothing to talk about in this <laughs> chapter, I was like... But no living animal would have made itself get covered with snow. You really into this one? Yes. You had a you had a thing prepared for yeah, that. Yeah, no, I did. Like this one, <laughs> this one actually, like this sentence specifically, just like I could write a whole paper on just this sentence alone. Um and and what it symbolically represents about Edmund's character and where he's at mentally as a, as a character, but also this symbolic representation of beasts throughout the chapters of this book so far. Need to get you back into like an English advanced degree program. Or I know. I just need to have a discussion group. Like that's why we're doing this, so that my brain feels better. Hello, discussion group. Hi, friends. <laughs> You're out there. Uh, you guys need to be more active and email us more. <laughs> For uh, my mental health. <laughs> uh-huh. Send us discussion questions at least. Um. Anyway, so we have the statues. We find the statue of the lion, which I think the placement is very symbolic. Uh, I think that the placement of the lion has more to do with Aslan's subtle influence than it does with the witch's intention. Like, I don't think the witch is trying to remind people, or either, you might be right, though, the witch might be trying to show people that she's more powerful than the lion Aslan. That's that's a flex. That's her saying. Fair, fair. It is a flex. Uh Uh-huh. And real quick, what do you think it means, though, that we have the lion here? And right in front of the lion, we have the placement of the dwarf statue. With his back? With his back turned. I think, I mean, it could be, if these are intentional placements, the queen is showing that the lion Mm -hmm. is sneaking up on those Uh that look similar to humans. And it's her way of, like, subjugating them. Like, she has a dwarf who serves her and stuff like that. Uh Uh-huh. But I don't know. It could also be, like... Showing that people are blind to the evils of Aslan, that she's trying to, like, she's trying to say, like, you can't even see how dangerous he is. Yeah. 
you've got your back to him. Yeah, so we have statuary uh, in the garden, which, as we know from previous chapters, like, apparently nobody who comes in here ever gets out alive, like, and this is... It doesn't say not alive, just never comes out again. Never comes out. There are statues, which apparently, well, we know it can be reversed, but, you know, let's not get into that yet. For the moment. Um... But yeah, it's very much like an abandon all hope ye who enter here type thing where people who are being brought into this place know that, oh, this is this is what's going to happen to me. Like Abandon all hope you who enter here. Now I understood yeah. all of the words. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I had to d- decipher that. Yeah, I, did I Go. not say it clearly? Uh, you did. I wasn't paying attention, I think. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'll find out when I edit it. Okay. Uh, anyway, and it's like very much like, you know... Aslan can't save you here. Yeah, walking to the gallows and seeing people hung around you and, like, this kind of thing, like, this very dark symbolism. Uh, Anyway, so it is a very spooky place that Edmund's wandering into. And then we meet a new character. Not a new one. Well... We get get introduced to a character whose name has been mentioned. Yeah. In the flesh. So we So he tries to step over a wolf that he thinks is another stone wolf, Uh but it is in fact Malgram, chief of the secret police or Fenris. Yes. If we've all as we've already discussed, this symbolic like the changes in name. Yes. Forgot uh before we get there, Edmund does a really silly thing. He draws a face on the lion. (laughs) He's trying really hard to conquer his fear of Aslan. Yeah. And it doesn't work. Yeah. So, I just... That's a fun little passage. Glasses. And glasses. On the lion. You know, it's making him look more distinguished. I don't know if it happens in the book, and we'll have to watch for it later, but in the movie, they make a point of including when that lion comes back to life that it still has the marks drawn on its face. Yeah. And it's cute. There you go. All right. Anyway, um, so we meet Mulgrim. I don't know why I want to pronounce it that way all the time. Okay. <laughs> It just sounds more ominous and uh, dark. I don't know. But chief of the secret police. He's a wolf. Yeah. And he challenges Edmund to identify himself, tells him to wait outside very still. Yeah. Says, sit here still and wait like a statue. Uh Uh-huh. And goes inside to report to the queen that he's here. And she summons him to come before him. And when he walks in, she says, how dare you come here alone? And he says, I did my best. Uh They're very close. Tells her where they are. Tells her uh, everything about Aslan. He's on the move. The stone table. And she immediately summons a sledge. Her dwarf (laughs) to get the sledge prepared without bells. Yep. So that they can go unheard and unseen. Yep. She freaks out. Yeah, she is prepared. She's no longer paying attention to Edmund. Uh huh. So, well, I guess I mean this is kind of the end of the chapter. But what do you think it means here that she is shocked by this information? Like you know, all the animals know apparently Aslan is doing something, and you know the beavers aware that he's coming in and whatnot. But she, who is the queen of this land and all, has all these titles and all and, these spies. Yeah, and all these spies knows nothing about him being nearby. I don't know. It's interesting <sighs> because we have. The beavers talking about it, too, as if it's been kept from the queen. Uh-huh. Like, that she didn't know. And they're talking about it like, oh, no, like, when did he leave? Did he know Aslan's here? Because he'll report it to her. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's a very interesting question of, like, 
have all of the animals just been like secretly telling only the ones that they trust like aslan's on the move aslan's on the move uh-huh. like the beavers were clearly able to get a message to take the children to the stone table uh-huh. so there's enough information going around that orders are being passed around uh-huh. but also yeah how does the witch not know this or maybe her spies aren't entirely loyal maybe mm. and aslan's a, a big enough deal that they're just like well we've also completely looked over the fact that tumnus was there Tumnus was there. He found Tumnus. Maybe. We found a sad-looking fawn. We don't Right know. inside the door. Yeah. Now, also, something that I always forget is that the statues are all over the inside of the house, too. They're not just all in the courtyard. Yeah. They're inside, too. Yeah. It's full of statues. Yeah. And he says that her chambers, essentially, where he gets taken to meet her, wherever it is, the place where he meets her is just as full of statues as the courtyard was. Yeah. So... Anyway, there you go. That's that's a chapter. All I have to say about that. All right. Anything else we want to hit on that we didn't really get to? Uh, See previous sentence. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think we touched on everything. Uh, oh, a cat of mountains. That's uh, a cat of mountains. That's a cougar. That's my one research. Uh, okay. Minute well, here. Well, there's statues of cat of mountains. So. Yep. Cougars. Never, dragon. Never a phrase I've. I mean, heard. there's a there's a dragon. Like wow. Wow. Yeah. And a giant. Yes. He's freezing her own kin. Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know what kind of giant she is, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think we've we've hit everything. I thought there were another line or two that I wanted to to jump into, but I think we're we're pretty good. Um, uh, yeah. So why don't we go ahead and jump into our rewrite then? All right, Narnia chopped and screwed, or as Chris likes to say, hashtag Narnia chopped and screwed. Yep. Or Narnia chopped and screwed? Hashtag. That's what Chris actually says. Yeah, because I don't know how hashtags work. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a segment where we uh, go through the chapter again. We find five more sentences that we... You go through the chapter twice? Uh, sort of. Uh, we find five more sentences that we think uh, we can make a new story with, and we you know retell a, a thing with the material that we've been presented with. So, write new stories. You go first. I am going first. So this one, I will, I will warn you that I didn't really do so much of, uh, of a brand new rewrite with a brand new story, and I just kind of tweaked the existing one a little bit. I think. So this is another chapter summary. You're saying? Uh, not really. But I don't know. I, I okay. You'll, you'll see. Edmund crept up to the arch and looked inside into the courtyard, and there he saw a sight that nearly made his heart stop beating. But it was too late to think of turning back now. It was then that he began very quietly to edge himself under the curtain which hung over the door. He found himself in a long, gloomy hall with many pillars, full as the courtyard had been of statues. Edmund began to be afraid of the house. Yeah. And so I didn't really do a, a, a new storyline so much as I wanted to make this journey to the house feel more foreboding, I guess. Yeah. Because I've taken out the character of Mulgrim and the Queen, and it's just Edmund in the house, which is the other character in the story. Uh-huh. And he's not entirely sure of why he's there. Mm. So Yeah, I like it. So, there you go. I like it. Thank you. My turn. Then... Very slowly, and with his heart beating as if it would burst, Edmund ventured to go up to the lion. 
Instantly, the huge creature rose with all the hair bristling along its back, opened a great red mouth, and said in a growling voice, Who's there? Please, your majesty, said Edmund. I've done the best I can. And Edmund stood in the shadow of the arch, afraid to go on and afraid to go back with his knees knocking together. Please, I'm only repeating what they said, stammered Edmund. Good job. That was really good. That was one of your best ones in a while. Thanks. Uh-huh. So you wanted to you wanted to make Aslan or, or the lion or somebody a character here that has an actual yeah thing. A presence and a yeah. regalness that okay. Edmund is stammering before, but almost as if it were to Aslan and the way he's reporting. Yeah. Like I did the best that I could. Yeah, that was really that was a really good job. It really changed the tone of the story a lot. Mm-hmm. I tried. Cool. Uh, we, I did a thing and you liked it. <laughs> you did. I, I like most of your things. <laughs> anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the last <laughs> the last segment of the podcast where usually just me, uh, I go through and I rate the chapter on a one to five star system, uh, just talking about how good I think the chapter did. You always say that it's a star system. Yeah, well, it, it that's the baseline that we're jumping off of, the five point five star system. Five, uh, five pointed stars. Yeah, five, 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 five pointed, pointed stars. stars. So it's a total of 25 possible points. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so we always use a different uh, unit of measurement, and this week, what is it going to be? It can't be dunces caps. I'm already one of those. Oh, I was going to say open gates. Mm-hmm. I was going to say statues of back-turned dwarfs or catamountains. I was going to say piles of snow. <laughs> Rivers. Symbolic images. Uh, statues. Statues of catamountains. Secret police wolves. <laughs> no, there's only one of those. Uh, all right. How do you know? He's he is the captain of the secret police. I press. guess there could be more. All right, let's go with uh, statues of catamountains. All right. And um, tell yeah. us, Chris, what would you rate this? Solid chapter overall. Uh, For I, a chapter like... that is just following a single child on his journey. Yeah, it's a single child on his journey, and I feel like this has echoes of some of the more boring chapters toward the end of Magician's Nephew, where it's just like, hey, Diggory's going on an adventure and we're going through some hills and we cross a river. Which I think is what the Diggory chapters were meant to parallel here. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, half of the first half of the chapter, I won't say nothing happens because we got a lot of stuff coming from inside Edmund's head about what he thinks of his family and what he's going to do. And we kind of have a sympathetic... Uh, turn toward Edmund because it talks, you know, the narrator is talking about how, oh, he's misunderstood. He can't be entirely bad. This, he yeah, he this wanna... really is the first time that the narrator has yeah. <laughs> directed us to take a sympathetic tone towards yeah. Edmund, too. He, he doesn't want to hurt his family. He just, you know, has the wrong idea and wants to get back at them for, you know, these slights that he feels uh, and all this stuff. And we're supposed to sympathize with Edmund here. And he's been taken under this spell. And then we have this whole journey. We get to the statues. Uh, I mean, the statuary scene is is nice. I feel like in this chapter, we don't really learn anything new about the world we're in. And it's entirely about Edmund and, and kind of an exploration of his character. Well, it's also Edmund learning about the world he's yeah. in, things yeah. that we already knew. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, overall, does fine. Uh, I feel like we get some good character development. Uh, we, I mean, we meet a new character that we don't really know anything about, but he seems imposing, and, you know, we need to meet another big bad. Uh, Malgrim. Malgrim. Uh, <laughs> so, overall, like, let's do middle of the road again. I'll say, middle well, three and a half, three, seven, five statues of Catamountains. Okay. I don't want to go quite to three because I think it's better than just an average chapter, but. So, like, 15 cat legs? <laughs> no, that you would said be three and a half. Three and a half, so. It would be 12 for the three full they're... cats. Oh, yeah. And a half I was going to say five pointed stars, but, you two, know. Two more. Cats so don't have five legs. 14 cat legs. Yeah. Three, seven, five would be 15 cat legs. Yeah. Okay. There you go. <clears throat> I mean, you could use ta- tails to make them five pointed. I guess I could. If you want this, if you want to stick with the star system that you've never used before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, what do you I, give it, Kristen? Oh, you know what? Like, I give this a tributary river, <laughs> um, feeding the main river, coming down from the mountains where the queen's palace is. Isn't that what all chapters are, though? Tributary tributary rivers feeding into the main story. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, by definition, like, you can't just take a single chapter out of the book and say, this is the story in most books. Otherwise, it could be a lake. you've wasted a lot of time. Yeah. But yeah, it could be a lake. But I feel like this is a tributary river as opposed to a lake. Like, there are lake chapters in this book, uh-huh. but th- this isn't one of them. So that's my rating. Cool. So since I uh, went overboard with the intro, do you want to take us out? Sure. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today in our discussion of Chapter 9 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, If you would like to join in on the discussion on our Facebook page, you can join us there at Chronically Podcast. You can um, also follow us on Instagram at Chronically Podcast, where we post pictures of trees and not uh, dams. And, um, you know, Chris in (laughs) coats that he finds in thrift stores. Um, you can is that also what we post pictures of. Yes, that is what we post pictures of. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> you should follow our Instagram, Chris. I should. Or you can uh, <laughs> hit us up at Chronically Podcast in Twitter on Twitter and give us your rating of the chapter or your fan art. You can also email us your own chapter summaries or rewrites discussion or questions discussion that questions that you want us to dive into on the podcast, and you can do that. Uh, to our email at chronicallypodcast at gmail. We're desperate for emails. Com. Um, Chris is desperate for emails. I, anything you send us, as long as it's not like super obscene, we will talk about on the podcast. Like at this point, Chris needs community. <laughs> so please join Chris's community. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of my co host, Chris, have a great day. Thank you. See ya. Ciao. Cheers. Cheers. God, I forgot to talk about how the dunce's cap and the sorcerer's hat it has symbolism about how the queen is a fake queen. Why? We can we can record a little bit. Uh, that's good enough. Okay.
We had one chapter that's followed Edmund before when he got into Narnia for the first time. Can you sit still, please? Just getting my summary ready. Just as Mr. Beaver had been respecting the... Respecting them. God, this is going to be hard to get through. And of course that set himself thinking about being a king. And of course that set himself... Started over because I was talking over you. God, I'm going to struggle with all of these. And of course that set him off thinking about being a king and all the other things he should do and his... How did you know? <laughs> but uh, have I been manipulated into caring about this person? <laughs> so excited to record. 